I'm going to welcome the speakers uh, in order of um, how they're going to uh, address this. So Daniel Levy is president of the US Middle East Project from 2012 to 2016. He was director for the Middle East and North Africa, the European Council on Foreign Relations. Before that, he was a senior fellow <clears throat> and director of the New American Foundations and Middle East Task Force in Washington and a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. He was also a senior advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister's Office and to Justice Minister Yossi Balin during the government of Ehud Barak from 2000, uh, 1999 to 2001. He was a member of the official Israeli delegation to the Israel-Palestine peace talks at Taba under Barak and at Oslo uh, B under Tzhak Rabin from 1994 to 1995. Yara Hawari is the senior Palestine policy fellow at Ashabaka, the Palestinian policy network. She completed her PhD in Middle East politics at the, the University of Exeter in the UK, where she taught various undergrad undergraduate courses and where she continues to be an honorary research fellow. Uh, in addition to her academic work, which focused on indigenous studies and oral history, she's also a frequent political commentator, writing for media outlets, including The Guardian, Foreign Policy, and Al Jazeera English. So welcome to our speakers. Daniel, over to you for around 15 minutes, if you please. Thank you. And now unmuted, which is even better. Thanks very much, Ian. and. Uh, it's good to be with you, Yara, and thanks to Nadine at the LSE Centre for putting this together. And what I thought I would um, touch on is, is two matters. One, which is to talk about the political dynamics inside Israel, and the other, which I imagine might occupy a lot of the subsequent conversation, which is this potential extension of Israeli sovereignty uh, in parts of the occupied Palestinian territories in the West Bank, uh, so-called annexation which is on the immediate agenda and I think is also something that might be putting more attention uh, on the, the Palestine issue in the coming period. And I guess the, the only reasonable starting point uh, for this is Sunday, a few days ago, where an Israeli prime minister who's just a week previously been sworn back into office appears in court under three charges for the beginning of his trial. He appears outside the courtroom and holds a press conference. There's a phalanx of Likud ministers and members of Knesset surrounding him. He attacks the court system, the justice system, the elites, the media, and asserts that this is the Israeli entire right wing on trial. Now, given his track record and everything he's done in violation of international law, having Netanyahu in court for the case he has to answer is a little bit like Al Capone going down for tax evasion. But I think it's important to, to establish what I think is a real link between perhaps the part of the conversation on annexation and this start of the conversation. How did we get to a place where, where this is happening? 
And I, and I think there's a story here in terms of a more provocative, more assertive, more self-confident, both Israeli prime minister personally and Israeli state internationally. Uh, and the common thread there is a sense that they can get away with it. Um, now, some would say, hey, where's the breaking news here? That was always the case. I would argue there is a palpable shift that has taken place here. And part of that shift is the fact that Netanyahu was appearing in court, having just been sworn in as the head of a coalition unity government, sharing power to some degree with the guy who had been running against him across three rounds of elections, across more than a year. And that chap, former Chief of Staff Benny Gantz, had agreed to go in and serve with Netanyahu, um, much to the chagrin of some of his former colleagues. But it, it also speaks to the fact that Gantz wasn't at any stage in this re-election cycle really offering a palpable ideological alternative. This wasn't someone who's saying, we need a radical recharting of the course that Israel is on. It was very much the personal. Vote for me. I'm not going to be that different, but I'm not going to be corrupt like this guy. Okay. So what is this coalition about? And I think the answer, as is quite often the case with amorphous, um, broad-based coalitions, is not much. I think that there is no clear governing uh, platform. What you have is an attempt to answer the question, do we go to a fourth election or is Israel going to move out of caretaker government and get back into kind of regular governance. So the focus of the coalition agreement is the modalities of power sharing. Gantz is supposed to rotate into the premiership in 18 months. Big question mark, will that happen, yes or no? Most of the coalition agreement deals with the division of ministries. Ministries have been subdivided, sliced, diced to create enough portfolios. In the 120-seat Knesset, you have 73 in the coalition. 47 in the opposition. Um, and of those 73, the majority will serve as ministers or deputy ministers. Um, of course, this is partly about the COVID crisis. Uh, Israel has, uh, as is the case with many countries that went into lockdown early, um, less than 300 fatalities so far, but obviously the major effect will be felt over a long period of time in terms of the economic crisis that this will engender, and that is clearly going to be on the agenda of the new government. We'll see a neoliberal economic policy being continued with the exemptions of a quite generous social welfare net, especially to those constituencies represented in the governing coalition. So I think the ultra-Orthodox here in particular. The justice system will be a battleground. It is probably alongside annexation, the primary battleground for Netanyahu. We can go into that more if that's something people are interested in. And the other thing to say at the outset is this is untested. These guys haven't tried to share power before. So there may be a degree of instability in the coalition, which we are not detecting at this stage. Couple of thoughts on the political power balance. And within that coalition of 73, 54 of the members are aligned with Netanyahu and his ideological allies 
on the right and the ultra-Orthodox right, and 19 are aligned with Gantz, which includes the two or three, depending how you want to count it, remaining members of the Israel Labour Party. If people remember that creature, it formed the country, it was in power for the first 30 years of Israel's existence. So that's the balance, 54-19. In that respect, Gantz has done rather well to create a mutual veto on every issue bar one, the issue we'll spend some time talking about, annexation, um, by getting a rotating prime, prime ministership. But um, I think the power balance is reflected in how Netanyahu managed a lot of the coalition negotiations in the confidence with which he took on the judicial establishment with the large silence of blue and white when that court case began. And inside the Likud, Netanyahu remains almost entirely unchallenged. In the opposition, you see a divided opposition. The opposition is in fact um, more varied. It's more of a heterogeneous opposition than government. So in opposition, you have a party to the even further right of Netanyahu, Yamina, Naftali Bennett, if people remember him. Uh, you have the rest of the centrists who didn't go with Gantz. And you have the more progressive left wing, which is largely, almost exclusively now made up by the joint list, which brings together the various factions which overwhelmingly represent the Palestinian citizens of Israel. And they'll be offering the more kind of fighting, assertive, uh, alternative agenda opposition in this period. Uh, very briefly, uh, what will this mean in terms of not domestic, but regional Palestinian, and, and I'll touch on annexation in, in my remaining time. But first, just to say more generally, what, what will that policy be? I think it won't change tremendously. I think Gantz probably still comes from that school of thought, which believes that one can improve some aspects of the daily details of Palestinian life without fundamentally changing occupation, control, disenfranchisement. All the reasons that make benevolent occupation impossible structurally will continue to prevail there. Um, regionally, I don't think we'll see much shift. I think Netanyahu is both ambitious and cautious. I think Gantz will probably be of a similar vein. Israel will continue to focus on Iran, um, will continue to build the relationships as much as it can with those Gulf countries with whom we have seen some breakthroughs. Israel will continue to want to keep America as sucked into the region uh, as it can. And interestingly, the one issue that has gotten a bit of attention in the speeches of the leaders from both factions is the threat posed by action at the International Criminal Court, which is pending. And I think that should be a signal to people as to uh, where Israeli potential uh, vulnerabilities and concerns really lie. So let me use my remaining time by making a few comments about um, the prospective extension of Israeli sovereignty uh, into further areas, of course, uh, East Jerusalem and the not only Jordanian East Jerusalem, but the surrounding Palestinian villages, which were part of the, of the West Bank, uh, were already annexed 40-odd um, years ago. Uh, so this would be, but that's 40 years ago. So this is the first act of formal annexation, if it happens since then. 
but I think there's an important cautionary preamble to any conversation on annexation. As I've said, there's going to be a debate around annexation. We'll perhaps be talking about Palestine more than we have been for a while. But it is crucial to remember that in many respects, this would be a continuation of what we have. That the current situation de facto is one of practical, permanent Israeli control of pushing out of Palestinians, of this being part of one political space that Israel has created. So this would make de jure, in some respects, what is already de facto. And one should not see, if annexation doesn't happen, this isn't a time to kind of breathe a big sigh of relief and say, oh, cool, everything's hunky-dory now. Uh, and I could even make a case, which I won't expand on here, as to why no annexation could be even worse in terms of the goodwill that might accrue and the um, blank check that might be given to other moves by the Israeli side. So what do we mean when we say annexation? Um, what is it? As I mentioned, it's been done before. And, and we, have, we don't have uh, the details of what this would look like, what legislation might look like. I expect that if it goes ahead, this will give some additional arsenal, give some additional tools to the Israeli system, the Israeli legal system, in terms of an ability to further confiscate Palestinian land, further displace Palestinians, further create all kinds of daily interruptions to Palestinian life. But it's not like those things aren't happening. And it's not like the Israeli court system, absent annexation, uh, has stood up and prevented those things from happening. Where might it take place? This is a big question. We don't know. There's a more um, far-reaching version of the territorial dimensions. Um, I think here the important thing to say is, in many respects, it doesn't matter. The signal being sent is the same signal. The illegality of the act is the same illegality. And we should not fall into the trap of pontificating over whether there's a moderate annexation or to go even further, an acceptable annexation that, that we can simply uh, move on and, uh, and ignore. I, I think the important principle to establish is that any annexation, uh, in terms of its international legality, in terms of the signal it sends for the future, is the same. Let me then close by discussing just a few of the dynamics around annexation. And um, let me focus on the Israeli part of that. And will it happen indeed? Um, will annexation happen? I would argue that this is primarily Netanyahu's decision to make. I think at the moment, the alignment of interests would err on the side of it being more rather than less likely that he does move ahead with some form of annexation. There was a commitment to do this in the election campaign. The election campaign is now over, but the commitment has been at the forefront of all Netanyahu's messaging. When his government was sworn in, when his faction first met, he has described this as something of historic import. He has described this as a fulfillment of uh, Zionism. He has described this in legacy terms. 
and he has no problem with this ideologically. Some have suggested, oh, Netanyahu would never do it. I think that's irresponsible um, analysis. Uh, it is true that Netanyahu tends to be risk averse and he has no problem with gradualism. What I, I think has changed here is the circumstances. What has changed here is Netanyahu's perception of what he can get away with. And that has changed because of real lived experience by Netanyahu and Israeli decision makers of what they have managed to get away with cost-free, consequence-free for so long. There is a changed international zeitgeist, Palestinian division and political weakness, and, and, and Yara, I will defer to Yara on these issues, um, but those things are perhaps more deeply embedded. There's the regional situation, and of course, first and foremost, the US. Netanyahu will not act alone, but I think it would be mistaken to consider Gantz and that, that faction within the government as posing a, an insurmountable obstacle. They may not pose an obstacle at all. Gantz himself has spoken in favor of annexation. I imagine on balance, he doesn't want it now, uh, but by allowing this to be part of the coalition agreement, which is the only thing on which Gantz does not have a veto, I think he has basically set out his stall on this issue. Let me then just very briefly, and, and, and the other factor there might be the security establishment who will not want this to be too destabilizing. And there's a little play going on here right now vis-a-vis -vis the PA, withdrawal of security cooperation. But, but again, my sense would be uh, this will not um, be decisive in preventing annexation. So just to touch on the other actors, which we can pick up or not, in the chat and the Q&A, and I'm sure Yara will go into some of this as well. I think the most important other factor to mention is the US. This is now an administration with a track record. Anyone who is expecting um, reasonableness and that there's some kind of uh, reasonable wing to this administration that will withdraw the green light and prevent Israel from doing annexation, I think has not been paying attention for three and a half years. The axis of extremism has carried the day at every important crossroads on this issue. And in fact, if Netanyahu has a wobble, it may well be the Americans that nudge him towards uh, annexation. And I think for Netanyahu, this will be a decision based, he will want to maintain his options and decide based on his interests at the time. I don't think that the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah has created a leverage for itself and a strategy and a plan that can be decisive but I'll park that issue um, and we'll probably discuss that and I'm interested to hear what uh, Yara has to say about this. I would just say that it might even be more costly if the alternative is a return to the peace process that includes the Trump plan. Finally there is a sense that perhaps there could be a perfect storm of international opposition. I would say that such a thing could be possible uh, in theory, uh, based on the Palestinians, Jordanian regional pushback, consequential action from the EU, perhaps a, a serious clarifying message of what this would mean from the candidate standing to replace Trump in November. I am not seeing that. Uh, and I do not expect that. Uh, so that's what I have to say on annexation. If it happens, I think the important thing is the morning after we don't go back to business as usual. Um, we can discuss what that means and what that doesn't mean later. So um, 
I'll hand back to Ian. Okay, thank you, Daniel, um, for that um, excellent introduction. I'm going to hand over to uh, Yara at this point, and let's focus more. Uh, I think would be useful on the on the Palestinian side than we've uh, than we've yet heard. Thank you very much, uh, Yara. Over to you. Thanks, Ian, uh, and thanks, Daniel, for your for your intervention. Um, I want I want to unpack the term annexation a bit. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, political commentary um, around this term, and it's the subject of many many webinars, including this one. Um, the term itself, it, it's a legal one. It's used by international law to describe when, uh, following the forced acquisition of territory by an occupying regime, said occupier applies its sovereignty over the occupied territory. Now, the act is illegal under international law. It's been reaffirmed by the UN Security Council as such um, in the case of Israel's occupation of the West Bank, Gaza and the Syrian Golan many times. Uh, another infamous case of uh, annexation was when Russia applied its sovereignty over Crimea and as a result suffered from sanctions by the, the, the international community as a, as a form of punishment for, for breaching international law. But I think sometimes, you know, with all this legal jargon, we, we sometimes lose what it actually means on the ground. Annexation is quite simply theft of land total control over it and the resources. And usually the, the large swaths, uh, displacement of large swaths of uh, the indigenous population. In Palestine, this initially happened in 1948 with the foundation of uh, the settler colonial state of Israel. And then later um, um, with the occupation of the 1967 territories, i.e. the West Bank, Gaza and the Syrian Golan. And, and the reason this issue is being discussed now is because of various events that have happened over the last few months, including uh, what Daniel outlined um, with the, the Israeli elections, but also because of the Trump plan, which was the most recent and sort of egregious proposal that was put forward at the start of this year. And it's, I think it's important to note that this plan didn't really break from what's previously been presented to Palestinians as as possible futures. Um, importantly, it actually follows a tradition of peace proposals over the past decades in which Palestinian futures are not premised on fundamental rights or on aspirations and sovereignty. Um, actually, they're completely disregarded. And, and the Trump vision proposed nothing less than Palestinian capitulation. Palestinians in the West Bank would be encased in a series of Bantistans. Uh, Gaza would remain this besieged enclave and the rights of Palestinians in exile completely um, ignored. Um, so I would argue that, you know, where this plan differs from other plans is that it's much more candid um, than prior efforts. And it, it really depicts quite blatantly what the US and Israel consider an acceptable form of Palestinian statehood, which is not really statehood at all. Now, uh, Daniel outlined um, sort of the, the, the internal... Um, domestic uh, Israeli political scene uh, very well. Uh, we know that there were three elections within a year um, as a result of Netanyahu and his rival Gantz um, being unable to put together a majority to form a government. Now, throughout this period, annexation was discussed by both sides as a given. 
the Gantz team at one point even claimed that Netanyahu had plagiarized the idea from them. Uh, and eventually, uh, earlier this year, an emergency uh, unity government was agreed upon between Netanyahu and Gantz, with the former continuing as prime minister for the first 18 months, and then uh, the latter supposedly taking over. But as Daniel mentioned, this is yet to be seen. Now, in terms of the um, agreed terms of government, annexation was agreed upon, and, and July 1st is sort of when uh, the government will be able to put forward uh, legislation uh, to the cabinet uh, uh, and the Knesset for, for approval. A lot of liberal Zionists um, who, uh, who, who put their place, who placed their hope in Gantz and his coalition um, view this unity government as, uh, uh, as collaborate, collaboration, as, as deceit and betrayal. And actually, a lot of international diplomats also place their hope in Gantz as, uh, as an opponent, opponent to annexation and as a potential partner for peace, which is completely shocking to me. Uh, um, uh, Gantz, uh, never did he give any sort of uh, inclination that he, that he would be an opponent to annexation. Um, and European officials have, you know, even re were reported to have directly warned Gantz into not entering a deal which would include uh, annexation. And I think it's completely naive and, and misplaced hope. Um, you know, this is a man who was using images of uh, bombing Gaza in one of his election campaigns and, you know, uh, was talking about sending Gaza back to the Stone Age. And this was a man that... that Europeans uh, described as a potential partner for peace. Now, uh, just going back to the, the, the legal definition um, of annexation, um, as we mentioned, Palestinian land occupied in 1967 is considered illegal under international law. Um, but the reality um, is, is that the occupation of the West Bank is de facto annexation. And what we're looking at now is the Israeli regime trying to extend its sovereignty for through de jure annexation, which would basically extend Israeli domestic law to much of uh, the West Bank, living only these small po pockets of uh, densely populated uh, Palestinian bantustans. Um, and, and a lot of this, as I mentioned, is legal semantics. Um, Israel essentially controls and has applied its sovereignty um, over all of the territory of what once was Palestine, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and we have to be clear about it. This is a situation of uh, de facto versus de jure. And it's a point uh, that the international community and third states, et cetera, really hold on to for dear life. You know, they, it seems that they can accept the de facto annexation, um, but de jure makes it very real for them. Whilst for Palestinians, of course, the reality of de facto is horrifically violent and very, very real. Um, we've seen since the, this annexation discussion, since the, the, the unity government formation, um, various EU member states warning and strongly advising uh, against Israeli annexation of Palestinian land. Um, but really, this, this follows uh, a typical pattern of lukewarm words and condemnations which are often presented to Israel with absolutely no threat of consequences or repercussions. Um, you know, there were very little consequences uh, when Israel annexed Jerusalem in 1980, and it was, and there were very little uh, consequences. Of, I mean, it was barely a whisper when Israel uh, declared sovereignty over Syrian Golan last year. 
Um, now, I want to situate all of this from a Palestinian point of view and analysis, which I think is quite often forgotten. You know, as I mentioned, when we talk about annexation, we're talking about theft and control of Palestinian land, resources and lives. We're talking about an ongoing process of, of settler colonialism, which Palestinians refer to in Arabic as the Nakhla um, referring to the 1948 Nakba. Um, in Palestine, uh, uh, this is a settler colonial project that began well before 1948, actually, um, and, but it was institutionalized in 1948 with the establishment of Israel as a Jewish state. And it's since continued to expand onto Palestinian land through different mechanisms of, of theft. Uh, and it's continued to try and subdue and dominate the indigenous po population through all these various different mechanisms including a system of apartheid. And, and that's uh, another uh, interesting point that keeps coming up during this uh, discussion of annexation, especially among uh, many liberal Zionists, that the annexation would uh, lead us to a situation of apartheid. Unfortunately, the situation of apartheid already exists. Um, and the situation of apartheid is not just about the separation of people, but rather uh, the separation of people um, that is used to enshrine economic and social dominance of one group over another. Uh, and rather ironically, of course, we know that South African apartheid was also enshrined in 1948. Um, for a lot of Palestinians, I think that the contents of the unity deal um, between Gantz and Netanyahu were not particularly surprising, neither were the points about annexation. Uh, I think annexation has always been on the cards. It's considered by many Palestinians as a raison d'etre of the Israeli regime. Um, lest we forget that it was actually a left-wing government, uh, a Labour government, that spearheaded the settlement enterprise in the, in the West Bank and Gaza following their occupation in 1967. So we really know that, you know, that the theft of Palestinian land and settlement building enjoys cross-partisan support in Israel. And I think um, this is why for many Palestinians, annexation doesn't bring anything new. Um, I think it might certainly accelerate the loss of land and displacement. But as Daniel sort of insinuated earlier, it also might be a game changer. Um, no longer is this, will there be a facade of, or, of two states or a pretense that Israel doesn't control uh, the West Bank on Gaza. Um, but, uh, you know, this doesn't mean to say that I think we're, we're not placing our hopes in the international community. Uh, I don't think Israel will face serious repercussions. We've seen that. Uh, that it hasn't when it annexed Jerusalem and when it annexed the Syrian Golan. Um, and we know that the Europeans uh, in particular are really hoping that annexation doesn't go forward, not because they don't want Palestinian land to be stolen, because it's quite clear that they don't care much about that, but because, you know, they, they have very strong ties with Israel. They're one of Israel's main trading partners, and it doesn't want to strain that relationship. And it will make it very difficult, annexation will make it very difficult for them to defend the international legal regime for which it founds itself on. Now, turning a little bit inwards um, and looking uh, at the, the, the Palestinian leadership's reaction to the latest um, annexation developments, uh, they have been, unfortunately, repetitive and regretfully quite weak. The, uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas once again threatened uh, to cancel uh, all, the, all the agreements with Israel and the US, and actually he announced that cancellation um, last week, I think it was. Um, 
And everyone thought it was uh, sort of, you know, well, there were a lot of comments and wondering if this was actually serious this time because we've seen it happen many times before. Um, it, specifically with regards to the security coordination, which is uh, the uh, agreement between the PA and Israel to share uh, uh, security information to for, uh, potential uh, terrorists or terrorist attacks. Um, in reality, what we've seen is a downgrading of the interaction between the PA and Kogat, which is the um, Israeli uh, uh, institution that operates in, in the West Bank and Gaza. So we've seen a downgrading of that interaction, but it hasn't been halted. Um, and I think this is because the, the, you know, the PA is really in between a rock and a hard place. It needs those agreements for its survival. It's highly dependent on the international community and the Israeli government. Uh, for its survival. So I think it's unlikely that it will ever be able to present a real challenge to annexation. Um, now, I know this sounds a bit depressing and defeatist, um, but I think it's important here to note that, you know, we're not waiting for a worst case scenario. We already live it. Um, and this is reality. And I think the more people that jump on board recognizing the situation for what it is, um, the more likely we'll be able to do something about it. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Yara. Um, so we have a couple of questions. Um, if it's okay, I will ask a question of both of you, actually. You've both been quite dismissive of potential international reaction to the possibilities of um, annexation. But I wonder whether under certain scenarios, um, I know the EU, the European Union is divided, but nevertheless, would you not see, would you not expect to see certain member states uh, actually taking action? For example, in this country, in the UK, um, no longer a member of the European Union, of course, um, but we've seen um, a, a significant number of MPs uh, and certainly former officials call for the imposition of uh, bilateral sanctions against Israel if annexation goes ahead. Now, clearly that's not going to happen in places like Hungary and Poland, but Sweden, for example, has uh, recognized uniquely the state of Palestine. Uh, do you not think that there would be any significant backlash towards Israeli, unilateral Israeli annexation in defiance of international law? Yeah, do you, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to not stick with this order any time you want. So I, I don't know if you want to go that first or... I, I, I mean, my, my response, Ian, is I think it's as likely coming out of London as it is coming out of Budapest. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, so, I mean, what I would say is the following. <clears throat> The uh, EU, the Vice President of the Commission, EU High Representative um, Joseph Borrell, has used a language of this will not go unchallenged. He has not managed to get that language agreed by all the member states, as you say, division. There are those um, more uh, ideologically aligned uh, with, with the liberalism um, uh, that, that, that Israel currently adheres to. Um, there are those, you know, interested in Southern European Mediterranean energy 
deals, uh, the Greeks, the Cypriots, etc. So you're not going to get um, unanimity, which is required for some things. Um, the coalition of the willing that could move forward with something that feels consequential, with this will not go unchallenged. There's a few who've spoken that language, <clears throat> but I'm hard pressed actually to come up with something actionable that would feel consequential to Israel that might be done. I could come up with a list of things that are possible and very consequential. I don't think those things are on the agenda. I don't think recognition falls into that category, by the way. I think recognition uh, not attached to uh, A, a 67 line, and B, consequences for actions beyond that line would be a symbolic act, uh, as it was with Sweden. Um, so in that respect, uh, the answer is no, and then there's a, there's a caveat. The caveat is something that Yara referred to already, um, which is this actually causes problems for the EU's internal legal order, the way it would then have to manage its bilateral relationship with Israel. Already those problems exist. So the EU has puts out business advisories to its businesses um, on issues like data protection, on issues like Interpol. Can you... Uh, can you cooperate with an Israeli system that doesn't respect an international legal order and, a, and a, a division between Israel proper and the illegal activities beyond the green line? So far, in most of these cases, they've found a way around this. This would add to the burden of finding a way around this. Um, but if they're looking to find a way around, they can. So that has happened in, in uh, uh, research and development cooperation, for instance, where actually Israel accepted the entities in the territories wouldn't be part of the program. Um, and that you could see that happening again. What I think it speaks to is the bigger reality of the consequences of annexation, which is that you won't feel, you won't really feel things in act one, the morning after annexation. I think the morning after annexation, the sky does not fall. Uh, what you will see Yara referred to the, the, the removal of the facade of the two-state option. And I think that's the consequential thing here. How much further down the road to um, just how people organize their expectations, their spatial maps, their, their, how they cognitively engage with this, which would be to go beyond this two-state idea. And that's where I think whether it's how Europe legally would deal with that reality, how Palestinians plan for their future, a whole slew of things, and, and also how the debate in Israel will, one imagines, one hopes at least, will eventually shift and, and have to deal with this one space that has been created, which doesn't mean that you, you couldn't disentangle it, but you'd have to do it very, very differently. Uh, so that's, that's how I see it. And I even think that some of the... Um, limited nature of the responses, the fact that the sky won't fall, some of that has to do with the fact that many, many actors have already discounted two states. Many have already baked in to their future planning that this conflict is going in a different direction. Okay, thank Just, you. Uh, 
Yeah, just a couple of points there. I, I don't think real uh, solidarity or support for the Palestinian people and their rights and aspirations of sovereignty exists at any state level anywhere in Europe. Um, I have to say when, when Sweden did its recognition of Palestine, it sort of went out on a limb and it was on its own. And, and if you talk to Swedish diplomats, um, they will... Uh, they they will uh, tell you that it was it it was really difficult and the consequences the diplomatic consequences were very tough um, and, and there is no real care for palestinian loss of land what there is a care for is trade relations what there is a care for is uh energy deals as daniel mentioned um there is sort of this assumption that western europe is more liberal progressive uh, than Eastern Europe, and in many cases, uh, in, in, on many issues, that might be the case. Uh, I don't want to make a sweeping uh, um, statement, but in terms of Palestine, it certainly isn't the case. Um, progressive, except for Palestine, is is basically the rule of thumb across uh, across Europe, certainly at a sort of a state level. Um, and I think we have to ask ourselves. Um, I know we've sort of fallen into the into the the trap of only talking about Europe when we talk about sort of uh, third actors um, and so perhaps we can delve into other actors later in the Q&A session but let's let's go back to Europe and think about what are exactly the tangible actions uh, that they have done um, with regards to Palestinian rights um, or what kind of repercussions has Israel faced for annexing Jerusalem we have seen annexation before this is what we have to keep reminding ourselves did your the jury annexation has happened before. It happened with Jerusalem in 1980. It happened with the Syrian Golan last year. And what were the repercussions of that? There were no repercussions. And in terms actually, of... Actually, it didn't happen with the Golan last year. What happened last year was that Trump recognised. The uh, annexation of the Golan happened in 1981, did it not? Okay, but the, the recognition no. of that by the US. Thank you. Sure. And Sure. Um, it happened, the US recognition of that happened last year and that's sure. and it's assumed that that was sort of setting or laying the groundwork for the annexation of the West Bank and so the lukewarm reactions we saw to the US recognition of the Golan very very well demonstrates what will happen with certain areas of the West Bank um, so you know I think annexation de jure annexation might not change that much on the ground, but it will change the narrative. And it will certainly be a fresher uh, for many Palestinians, especially Palestinians working in this field, where uh, diplomats and, and politicians uh, will not be able to, to lie to our faces anymore, to keep up this facade, uh, that they are upholding their responsibilities as third state actors, or, or that Israel will face repercussions. And I for certainly look forward to that. Um, because having to listen to these actors lie to you day in, day out is incredibly tiring. So I look forward to a shift in the narrative. Okay. So um, Anne Irfan uh, is asking, what is your analysis of the PA's response? And I'm going to, and I'm going to actually add, uh, I'm going to merge two questions, if that's okay in the sense that David Powell is asking what is likely, what is the likely response of Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority to the future of agreements between the PA and Israel? So for example, would it, would it not include 
the Oslo Accords, which is, of course, the, the, the basis for the creation of the PA. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why it's almost comical when we hear these sort of threats made uh, by the PA and by Abbas, which he's done so on many occasions. Uh, and as I said, this time there was sort of a question whether it might or might not be serious. Even I had to sort of take a step back and think about it. But um, I don't think we should second guess ourselves. We should. The PA is very predictable and always follows a similar pattern. And I think we should take that as the norm. Pulling out of all the agreements, including Oslo, as you mentioned, Ian, would would sort of be a, a self-extinguishing prophecy for the PA. I mean, the PA was created as an interim, interim government by the Oslo Accords. Um, so it would bring serious questions as to what that means for the existence of the PA. And let's not forget that the PA uh, relies on international uh, donor money and Israel itself for support. I mean, uh, and there will be very severe consequences. And uh, if you talk to a lot of um, international actors, the security coordination is, is considered vital and sacred. Uh, to many. Uh, and so the uh, cancellation of that uh, would have serious implications on, uh, on their funding, on their, on their external support. So I, I think a lot of it is rhetoric. I think a lot of it is hakifadi, empty words. Um, I don't see uh, what we have seen in practice on what we have seen in the last few days since that announcement of the ending of the security coordination is actually a sort of a scaling down of communication between the PA and COGA, um, but it hasn't meant a, a, a complete halting of that coordination at all. Um, so I think it's, uh, as I've, I said in my presentation, the PA is really stuck in a very difficult position indeed, um, where it, 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 you know, it, it announces these sort of, makes these big statements, um, about these agreements because it, it has to maintain uh, some kind of legitimacy from the, the, the people that they claim to, to rule or represent. Um, but unfortunately, that, or fortunately, that legitimacy is, uh, is being lost very, very quickly indeed. Daniel, thoughts? Maybe I can just add how, how it's playing out in the, um, the Israeli media which is, and you've got two contradictory positions being, or, or analyses being offered, which largely align with what is the position on annexation of the analyst. So those who are less keen on annexation, wouldn't want to see it happen, are hyping up the elements of downgrading of security coordination that Yara spoke about. And, sorry, those who want to see annexation, yeah, they're hyping it up. And those who, you know, don't, who do want to see annexation, sorry, um, are making sure to refer to all kinds of signals they are apparently receiving and Israeli forces are apparently receiving from elements in the uh, PA establishment, including in the security establishment, that are calming messages saying, don't worry, we won't continue with this for very long. Uh, don't expect anything to, uh, um, uh, to change too much. And I think what that ultimately speaks to is, I think President Abbas is hoping that this signal will do all the things that similar signals have not done in the past. 
and it didn't work in the past and it won't work this time. For an international push on Israel, for forces within the uh, Israeli system and the Israeli security system who do not want to take risks and do not want to push forward. Uh, and I doubt it will have that effect because ultimately, I think, and this is what the Israeli system writ large understands, is for a change to be sustainable, it's not just the short-term withdrawal of parts of security cooperation. It requires an entirely different Palestinian leadership approach to their own predicament, to their own freedom, their own struggle, etc. And we are not seeing the preparation for that. The PA is the largest employer of Palestinians. So you actually have to have a, a, a concept in mind because Palestinians will be deeply affected by this. And so you have to be offering them an alternative and that's not really happening and, and Yara touched on all of that. I, I think the downgrading of security cooperation is not sustainable, but I also think the overall co-optation is not sustainable either. So I think ultimately what, what, what Yara has pointed out and, and the kind of direction of travel that this will accelerate amongst Palestinians um, is likely to be a byproduct of, of everything that goes on around annexation, including, I mean, there's a call from Al-Haq and from many, many Palestinian civil society organizations to the international community of what should be done. I think the um, frustration, not that there's a great expectation, but still, when you're reminded even under circumstances of annexation, that there's no there there in terms of the international response. I think this will generate over time a rethink to Palestinian strategies from amongst Palestinians, which is at the end of the day more important than anything else. Thank you, Daniel. Um, Rebecca is asking an uh, interesting point. To what extent has the COVID pandemic affected the annexation issue? Is it a, is it a catalyst or simply relevant? That's, um, that's a very good question. I think a lot of um, sort of COVID analysis is going to take time to see, uh, you know, in the, the coming months to see exactly what effects COVID has had um, on, on Palestine and Palestinians. Um, with regards to and the theft of Palestinian land, we uh, we know that it hasn't uh, hasn't stopped during uh, the, the the pandemic outbreak. The occupation doesn't take a break. Uh, the soldiers weren't uh, sent home on, uh, on quarantine. They actually continued um, to raid uh, the West Bank. Uh, there was actually an increase, a spike in, in settler takeover of land as reported by um, B'Tselem, the Israeli um, human rights organization. Um, so we didn't see, we're yet to see sort of to work out any correlations or patterns, but we know, uh, you know, we know very, it's very clear that the occupation uh, on the theft of Palestinian land uh, didn't sort of downgrade or, or stop in um, what was difficult for many Palestinians and activists and those who are involved in, in grassroots movements is that a lot of sort of traditional forms of protest against the Israeli regime um, happens on the streets, happens on the lands, and, uh, and that wasn't possible over the last few months. So a lot of Palestinian activism was sort of 
occurred or, or took place on Lung, which is not particularly effective um, in terms of sort of you know, stopping land theft. But again, you know, Palestinians have not been able with their bodies to, to stop a lot of theft. There have been a few uh, success stories success stories, we, uh, you know, in the larger scheme of things, I don't think they're necessarily um, that successful. So I think it's, you know, I think it, it's, a, it's a difficult question to, to talk about now, especially as we're only just coming out of lockdown in, in, in Palestine. So perhaps it's sort of, yeah, maybe, maybe at some point in the not too distant future, we can sort of dwell on that and think about that more. Okay, thank you. This is a question from Inga Rog. Both speakers, Yara, you're clearly very disappointed by the Palestinian leadership stand. Um, almost an English understatement, isn't it? Um, what would, in your opinion, be um, the right thing to do to change the reality and the narrative? And, and to Daniel, what, in your view, should the... Um, uh, the PA's response B, but Yara, I think. Thank you. That's a huge question. Uh, what should the Palestinian strategy be? I'll give it to you in a minute. Um, no, it's, I mean, yeah, and also an understatement to say that I'm disappointed with the Palestinian uh, leadership. I think um, my opinions and views of the Palestinian leadership are not, uh, uh, are not in the minority. Uh, the majority of Palestinians, especially young Palestinians, are, um, are angry and frustrated at the leadership. And, and, you know, we also have to unpack what the Palestinian leadership is. Um, I want to emphasize that there is a difference between the Palestinian Authority and the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, although the two have, over time and certainly since the, the creation, well, since Oslo, uh, they've sort of merged uh, and that has been of design really to sort of try and co-opt the PLO in into the PA but there is and there remains um, uh, a distinction between the two the PLO is the legitimate uh, official representative of all the Palestinian people wherever they are in exile um, in the, the 48 territories in the West Bank and Gaza uh, and the PA is simply an interim government that was created by external forces uh, and foreign actors. And I think that distinction always has to be made because I think in the PLO there remains some hope, especially because many Palestinians outside of Palestine still regard it as a legitimate body. And it requires a massive upheaval and revival or, and return to a revolutionary politics not a politics of uh, cooperation, of capitulation. Um, I think it's too much to go into now, but I, I, I certainly speak on behalf of myself and, and a, a lot of Palestinians I know that, you know, this politics is not working for us. This politics in which has led us to this incredibly vulnerable situation that we find ourselves in, one that is, you know, only uses the toolbox of international law foregoes the rights of, you know, more than half the Palestinian population, those in exile, the citizen, Palestinian citizens of Israel, one that sort of, you know, uh, sort of waits for scraps from the international community. You know, we've tried that for so long, and this is clearly not working anymore. So it does require a return to a more revolutionary politics. 
um, uh, it's not easy. I don't think that there is any sort of easy or step-by-step -step process um, for that. But I think uh, reviving the PLO as a legitimate body um, uh, and one that Palestinians can feel represented in um, because there is also that issue of representation. The PA doesn't represent anyone but itself and its own interests. Daniel? Yeah, I, 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 I want to be careful here because it's not, it's, it's not my position to, 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 to say what to do. What I would say is that no political international actor will be more disruptive of the status quo than those who it recognizes as the Palestinian leadership. So if the Palestinian leadership are not breaking out of the structures that have singularly failed to deliver for the Palestinian people, then do not expect others to do so. This will have to be led by a Palestinian political move. And, you know, when I speak to officials and policymakers, I, I, I always have to say, look, there are all kinds of things you can do. I acknowledge the likelihood of you doing these things where, when the people you recognize as the Palestinian leadership are not suggesting, are not encouraging, are not prioritizing these things is very, very low indeed. So, you know, I think, I think that is the takeaway. For me, Palestinian division is debilitating and is clearly a place to start. The PLO is the center of, of gravity of this, as Yara said, not the Palestinian Authority. And I think that there are lots of reasons why one of the themes of our conversation about international inaction, there are lots of reasons, not just when it comes to the issue of Palestine, Palestine, Israel, but all kinds of other issues internationally. There are lots of reasons why there are not action. But undoubtedly, one of them is the side most impacted by these policies is not galvanizing an effort to, for, to force a rethink uh, on the part of those actors. And the last thing I would say is regarding Israelis. You know, Israelis have reached a place, I'm not just talking about the political leadership, but the way this filters through into the public debate, where it is far too easy to be dismissive of what Ramallah says or doesn't say. In a conflict situation, it is important to, 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 to also respect, respect from the perspective of respect that they, they carry some kind of threat to you. I'm not talking about a threat of violence here, necessarily or principally. To respect your adversary, to take your adversary seriously, to actually see that there is an adversary there who, who, who is trying to create leverage over you. And I think that has been true for Israel vis-a-vis Hamas in many ways, and not true vis-a-vis -vis those in the West Bank uh, who are leading in, in the West Bank. And, and that's an important part of the equation if one wants to, over time, cause the Israeli public and political class to reconsider the utility of the path they have taken. Thank you, Daniel. Banu Eligor. Uh, is asking what makes the Arab world in general remain silent regarding the Trump peace plan and the potential annexation of the West Bank? Can we explain this only by the perceived Iranian threat on 
behalf of the Saudi-led Gulf states in particular, or are there other reasons for the inaction on the part of the uh, wider Arab world? Do you see a shift in the, on the part of Qatar uh, turning out to be passive vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian issue? Daniel, I was hoping you would go first. You give me some time I to, will, compose, to compose myself. <laughs> I will. I'll, I'll tee you up if you like. Um, so, probably to channel Yara, um, let, let's start. Let's start with an acknowledgement of something, and the acknowledgement is that this is not new. That the idea that there has been uh, an Arab front that has gone out to bat in meaningful ways for the Palestinians is uh, not borne out by the history. I think what is, what is new is uh, not just a sense, but a reality that in certain quarters in the region, in certain Arab states, uh, there is now a willingness to say, yalla, let's, let's move ahead with the kind of uh, cooperation. It doesn't have to all be out in the public, but with the kind of cooperation with Israel that can be useful to us, whether that is uh, in terms of advancing our relations with America, and this has been an important part of the Egypt relationship uh, for many, many years, uh, whether that is vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran, whether that is vis-a-vis -vis the acquisition of all kinds of spy software, cyber functions that Israel is a, a world leader uh, with respect to. There's a willingness to say, we, we, we're not gonna let those things be held back uh, by dint of, 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 of some need to profess filialty to a Palestinian cause. So, um, so I think that is a change. I think it's coming from precisely the, the, the places I said. Um, I think it's partly a bet being placed by uh, a set of leaders in the region um, that the younger generation don't care that they can get away with this. I'm not at all sure that that's an accurate reading of their own uh, publics. Uh, I think it, it especially for some has come in the context of the Trump administration where let's not underestimate the extent to which the Trump administration um, judges you by how you behave uh, on this issue. And, and that's a lot to do with how these different systems are managing themselves, not only regionally, but also internally. It's a lot to do with the fallout from the events since 2011. It's a lot to do with how one positioned oneself uh, in respect to that. Um, and finally, it's also part of the conversation we were just having, which is the reduced Palestinian capacity to deliver embarrassment. Let me put it like this. You know, there is an ability, I think, to deflect some of this, to hold some of this back. Uh, but, but that would require a, 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 
as part of a change strategy that we've been discussing, a Palestinian leadership that is also able to be part of the generating of blowback and consequences for um, too excessive an abandonment of, of uh, the Palestinians. And a final caveat, the public statements are still there. The Arab League position is still what it is. It's not followed up with action. But, you know, everyone across the board has come out with a strong position on annexation. It's true that I think there were a handful, less than a handful, of not your top tier, uh, let's put it like that, uh, states from the Arab League represented in the room when Trump unveiled his plan and not represented at a top tier. The Americans wanted Arab leadership in the room. They didn't got, get that. They got a, less than a handful of, of ambassadors in Washington, D.C. to be in the room. Significant. I'm not saying that's nothing, but it's certainly not where the administration wanted to be. So let's also not exaggerate the extent to which they've been able to create this moment where Bibi can have peace, public peace, open meetings with these guys under the cover of the Trump plan against the Palestinians. I don't have much to add, actually. Um, Daniel said what uh, I was going to say in a much more measured way, I think. But, you know, I think it's key that uh, self-interest, capital and profit always uh, take precedence over Palestinian rights. And Palestinians have been pawns in, in regional political games for a long time. And, and you know, as things are shifting, alliances are shifting, um, um, you know, Palestinians are not, it's not so necessary to support the, the Palestinian cause at state level. I mean, I would say, though, however, that it's always important to differentiate between the people and the state and that, the, the, you know, Palestinian people do, you know, still maintain support from a lot of their brothers and sisters. But it's, you know, we're talking about at a state level. And I think uh, from what Daniel said uh, was incredibly accurate about, you know, the, the, the security, trade, spyware, all this kind of thing, you know, really does take precedence so for uh, over, over Palestinians. Thank you. I'm going to um, I'm going to merge a few questions uh, because inevitably some of them are focusing on the on the on similar issues. So Jasim Rouloum from Bahrain asks: Can Jordan sustain the pressure associated with the potential annexation, given its own economic challenges? Do you think that Israel is taking advantage of problems facing Jordan for the annexation move. And I, I, I should add that I think King Abdallah of, of Israel's immediate Arab neighbors has spoken out fairly forcefully against the potential uh, of annexation. He hasn't threatened to withdraw from the peace treaty, but I think that it is a significant issue. And particularly, I'm curious to hear what Daniel says about that, uh, particularly from the members of the uh, Israeli security establishment too, who wouldn't want, I think, to, to damage an, you know, an important strategic relationship. And Egypt is less clear. But anyway, I'd be curious to hear both your thoughts on, on that. Thank you. Okay. I think it's, it's, I think it's important to bring Jordan into the conversation for all kinds of reasons. I think the point Ian was just referring to is right. The closest you will have to a, a winning or compelling argument in the Israeli arena, and especially in the Israeli security establishment arena, will be uh, that Jordan has been considered 
the relationship with Jordan, the stability of Jordan has been considered a cornerstone of Israel's national security paradigm in the region. And that if Jordanians are making a lot of noise, and if the assessment is that this is destabilizing in that respect, you have to judge uh, annexation, the prospect of annexation uh, against that yardstick. The King gave an interview in Der Spiegel where he suggested that, uh, he suggested all bets were off. Um, I'm paraphrasing. To the extent to which blue and white the Gantz faction in the coalition might try to drum up some serious opposition. And I'm not convinced, but, but I don't rule it out. Uh, I think exhibit A in their arguments of why not to do this will not be anything to do with the Palestinians. It will be Jordan, which is why I find it even more interesting and why I think there is a real nervousness inside Jordan at the prospect that Israel is beginning Israel, that there is a wing in the political leadership in Israel, in the political class, and increasingly seeping through into the security establishment that is beginning to discount to a certain degree the relationship with Jordan because they understand that the journey they are on with the Palestinians will eventually necessitate a reconfiguration of that relationship. So whether it's in 2020 or 2030, eventually the reality of no Palestinian state, and also let's just, let's be clear. The bet that Israel is placing is that either it can contend, it can deal with Dividing the Palestinians up into these tiny reservations, islands of governability in perpetuity, or having less Palestinians there to govern, right? And that also has a consequence for Jordan if you go down either route, but especially if you go down the latter route. And that this is being factored into some of the thinking. I'm not saying it's the determinant thinking yet on the Israeli side, but Jordan has detected signs that Israel is beginning to recalibrate the relationship with Jordan because it understands what is coming down the pike. And I think that is particularly uh, concerning for the Jordanians. And then, of course, there's the whole dynamic inside Jordan vis-a-vis uh, -vis their own um, Palestinian population, which is why this is existential to Jordan, but kind of passable for others. Yeah, and I uh, just to... Just to agree with Daniel, that this is there are many aspects of this that is... Uh, that poses existential questions for Jordan. There are a lot of domestic issues that Jordan is incredibly worried about, not least to mention that 60% of their population is Palestinian. Uh, and so there is immense pressure from, from inside Jordan as well, vis-a-vis -vis their own you know, citizens um, who have uh, Palestinian heritage. Also brings into question about their uh, role in the Haram al-Sharif as well, which I think they're very sensitive about. Um, um, uh, and worst of all, potentially having more Palestinians in Jordan. You know, that's something that a lot of countries in the region are worried about. No one wants the Palestinians. Um, so I think these, you know, it places Jordan in a very difficult, difficult position indeed. And I think it's something that a lot of us analysts are sort of looking at and watching very carefully because it's, it's really a lose-lose situation for Jordan. Thank you. A question from Michal. 
thank you for your interesting insights. There seems to be a disbelief regarding the actuality of an annexation happening within Israeli society. Not for lack of Netanyahu's willingness, but rather for lack of real support from the US and a possible, hopeful, uh, in bracket, change of US administration, uh, obviously the president, in November. I find it hard to believe, uh, Michal says, that annexation will become a reality regardless of the current de facto situation of Israeli sovereignty in the occupied Palestinian territories. What are your thoughts regarding this actuality? Well, Michael is very optimistic that there might be a US administration change in November. I um, Well, I don't know if I'm less optimistic. I just I don't know whether it's a case about optimism. Um, but Biden versus Trump is another discussion um, entirely. Um, Look, I, I do think there is weight to saying that the decision with regards to uh, annexation could well be made in DC. I don't necessarily think it's a massive priority of Netanyahu to, you know, to do so. Daniel might disagree with me here, but I think it's, you know, it's, you know, there is a, there is a lot of, uh, a lot of weight, a lot of pressure coming from DC to deliver upon this. We can't forget in evangelical Zionists as major actors in the in this whole situation especially with regards um to to annexation um with regards to israeli society and their thoughts of annexation i think you know i i i don't think israelis can for the most part consider it an issue i think there is an uh, you know it there are several schools of thought when it comes to israeli society um i think there is one that you know believes that um and the, the West Bank and Gaza, um, Judea and Samaria, you know, vital uh, uh, and inseparable parts of the state of Israel. And it's only, you know, it's only natural uh, that, that, that Israel uh, should be extending its sovereignty there. Uh, and there is another school of thought, um, we might call these sort of more liberal Zionists, who would argue that it's imperative for security that Israel maintains um, control over these uh, territories because Palestinians are... Uh, barbaric and uh, and terrorists and, and use every opportunity possible to attack Israel, um, uh, and, and there is a much um, smaller uh, camp of people, um, anti-occupation activists, we might call them, sort of human rights activists who who uh, do not support uh, the occupation of uh, of the West Bank and Gaza. So there are all these different, you know, varying groups within Israeli society. But I think the majority of the Israeli society don't inherently see a, you know, a problem with extending Israeli sovereignty um, to these areas. And we saw that throughout the election campaign where you know, the, it wasn't even considered an issue um, in, with the opposition and with Netanyahu. Actually, they were fighting over whose idea it was in the first place to extend sovereignty. So I don't think there's a huge discussion within Israeli society whether it's the right or wrong thing to do. So I think... I think it's an interesting point. Um, my reading is not that Israelis don't believe it will happen, but that they don't necessarily believe it will matter, which I think carries that it will, it will mean much. Uh, I think they see it more as it will be just another kind of festival of, of, for Netanyahu and the right, uh, and then life will carry on as usual. And, that, and I think that may not be a, an entirely, uh, in the short term, mistaken uh, reading of things. 
Uh, and I agree. I mean, what I've written in a paper that I think is, is in the, the very top of the, the chat box is I've written, is annexation desirable for Netanyahu? Yes. Is it his overriding priority? No. Um, but I think at the moment, doing annexation aligns with Bibi's short-term interests and his more longer-term goals. So I think it's, it's, hence I think it's more rather than less likely. And I think the US support will be there. We, we, we discussed that at the beginning and, 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 and it could even be pushing as was just suggested. And Biden has certainly um, suggested that while he is not in favor, he should not be seen as a problem uh, when it comes to uh, annexation. Then all I'd say on this is, look, I think, you know, a lot of factors have taken the, the center of gravity of the Israeli societal debate uh, and politics to where it is today, from historical narratives to contemporary zeitgeists to, uh, you know, lack of leadership on the other side. What are the values that most speak to people? I, I don't see those as set in stone. You know, those can, those can shift. It's not a journey that happens overnight the inability of creating a leadership uh, that can offer an alternative to the public, the inability of a public to define their identity in terms that don't involve the subjugation of Palestinians. These are really big, hard things to overcome, but I would argue they're not insurmountable. And I'll, I know we're not ending here, but let me throw out just a little ray of hope. You know, I think for the Jewish Israeli population, there was an interesting debate like this. There's an interesting debate that took place in the election and especially immediately post-election. You have a joint list with 15 seats, the most viable force on the progressive wing of Israeli politics. And so the question for Jewish Israeli liberals, and these guys are not Zionists, okay? The question for Israeli Jewish liberals is, do you believe you can build a liberal alternative without the oppressed minority in your own country? or not. And that debate became far more immediate, far more current. And ultimately, Gantz jumped the wrong way. I don't know if he had such an easy option to jump the other way, because Lieberman certainly isn't part of the camp uh, that sees them as, as, as citizens, as, as humans even. But I do think that it's impossible to build a liberal camp in Israel. It always has been. But right now, the, the, the in-your-face impossibility of that without dealing with the non and anti-Zionist political force of the Palestinian citizenry in Israel, I think adds a healthy element to that uh, debate and to that eventual potential rethink uh, on the Israeli side, but I've gone too long. And of course that's been aggravated by the, the, the passing, I think in 2018 of the nation state law, which was widely perceived to be uh, discrimination and, and, and even racist. Um, I'm going to ask uh, a question on behalf of Andrew Whitley. In the face of the serious threat posed by de jure annexation to the Palestinian national cause, why have there not been more serious moves at this time by Fatah and Hamas to promote reconciliation and present a common front to Israel and the rest of the world? Surely the absence of such moves is very telling. Yara. Um, yes, it is very telling indeed of where the, the Palestinian political scene is, which is one that's 
um, based on egos, uh, male egos and uh, um, deep divisions, political divisions. I don't think Abbas is very interested in, in reconciliation with Hamas. It's a very personal issue for him. Um, uh, and I think there are many forces that sort of deepen that division. Uh, you know, it's also reconciliation is, you know, is a huge, uh, huge uh, feat. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge undertaking, particularly considering the fragmentation of the Palestinian people. When we talk about Gaza, which we haven't talked about much in this, um, in this webinar, um, unfortunately, um, and there are many reasons for that one, because of the issue of annexations pertaining to the West Bank, but also because, you know, Gaza is purposely being, you know, cut out of the picture, it's being fragmented and sort of siphoned off. Um, we, we hear quite often in mainstream media and politics, you know, people referring to Gaza and Gazans, you know, not as Palestinians, and it's all part of this attempt to, to take Gaza out of the equation. So I think there are, you know, multiple forces that are interested in, 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 in maintaining uh, the, the, the political divisions. I think uh, the, the, the old guard and certainly uh, Abbas is sort of loyalists are not really interested in, in, in reconciliation um, with uh, Hamas. Um, I think it's, um, it's of one of the most important uh, uh, endeavors that Palestinians have to pursue is uh, reconciliation um, um, between many different political forces. And that's not to say that, that Palestinians um, can't maintain political plurality. I think often there is a, sort of an assumption or a sort of um, insistence that Palestinians speak with one voice, and that's not what Palestinians should be doing. It's uh, not uh, what should be expected of Palestinians. Palest Palestinian society is a politically plural one and should always be so. Um, but I definitely think this is about reconfiguration of the Palestinian political system. It's, you know, this is a, a system that has been incredibly factional and paternal and, and that needs to end. And I think it's of utmost Palestine, you know, it's the only thing that Palestinians can do in the face of this. We have seen that, you know, so many international efforts have failed uh, and the annexation de facto or de jure will, will go full stream ahead. Um, and, and for Palestinians now, it's important to think about our political project and to demand of, you know, the political parties and the leadership to, de to demand more. And there have been uh, demands from youth in the past. In, in 2011, there was then a youth movement in the, in the West Bank that demanded reconciliation for the sake of the Palestinian uh, National Liberation Project. And I think that demand has to come again and it has to be front and center of Palestinian efforts, because quite rightly so, I don't think uh, we will be able to, to stop this without, without that there. But I think it's an issue of, uh, unfortunately, of, of, of the current leadership. I, I don't see reconciliation happening uh, with the current political players in position. Daniel, do you want to answer that? Okay, I have, I, I, we have to draw this thing to a close, um, but I want to ask, if I may, uh, a last question. So this is uh, the looming annexation has has been seen uh, as the final nail in the coffin of the two-state solution. That's 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 fairly clear. I want to ask both speakers to address the issue. If the annexation goes ahead and the two-state solution, which many people would argue has long been 
an illusion that has served uh, Israeli de facto uh, annexation as opposed to formal annexation. If this, um, if this goes ahead and a two-state solution is no longer uh, achievable, is a one-state solution achievable at all? It's becoming increasingly fashionable to talk about that, to use the language of between the river and the sea and so on and so forth. But does anybody on the Palestinian or the Israeli side have a workable strategy for achieving that solution of equal rights for both peoples who live and presumably will continue to do so between the river and the sea. Daniel, please go first. She reached for the unmute button. I thought I was off the hook. Um, so, Ian, my response to that is that I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy and it's a bit of a distraction. And the reason I say that is that I believe a different politics is possible uh, and a different uh, way of going about uh, addressing uh, where we have gotten to, how this system is maintained in place, how inequality is maintained in place. I think there's a different way about different way of going about challenging this set of realities, creating the space for different kinds of debates, creating a different kind of incentive and disincentive structure. I think that gives rise to a different conversation amongst Israelis and Palestinians. And for me, that's what matters. When we get to the point where Israelis can no longer take it as a given that Palestinians live in this reality, and it's sustainable and it's okay and it's cost-free. And once Palestinians see that there is actually a horizon where they can effectively leverage a struggle for their rights, then let's see where it takes us in terms of possible political solutions. Is it a version of a space that is called Israel and a space that is called Palestine in which the, 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 the arrangement to get there is attained in a far more just way? Is it that this is one shared space? Uh, for me, to front load those questions is to miss the point of, of where we are now and what most urgently needs addressing. And that's not a cop-out. I genuinely think that there's no point trying to build the Platonian perfect model of one state. Uh, what we have to do is address why we are so, so stuck. And I just want to say that it's not just male egos on the Palestinian leadership side. It's also on the Israeli leadership side. And one of the most, I think, depressing things in this Gantz phenomenon is that here was a party created with no internal primaries. They had the absolute choice of any of the talent in the liberal, and there's talent in the, in the Israeli liberal center. There is. And what they chose to do was put a bunch of men and a bunch of generals at the top of that list. And that was reflected in the division of portfolios. But that's just a closing comment. Yeah. Daniel, you scared me there. I thought you were going to say it's also female egos because we only have one woman on the Palestinian side. So I'm going to refute that. But you're absolutely right. Politics globally is dominated by male egos. And uh, we all hope for the day that that ends soon. Um, I don't think it's a discussion. Um, I, I do think we have to be careful not to fall into this trap of arguing one state versus two state. And the reason I say that is because 
uh, a one-state reality already exists. Um, and I don't think it's about whether it's possible or not. We have that. Um, from the river to the sea is a very old slogan. It's not just a, a recently popular one. Um, but I think it's about configuring or deciding what we want that regime to look like. There is Israeli effective control over everyone who lives in this territory, and we need to decide on a new politics, as Daniel mentioned, one that, that it, uh, addresses the, the inequalities and, and the injustice. So I find that that sort of one state versus two state can be very, very distracting and, uh, and, uh, and polarizing. And I think it allows for people um, to use arguments uh, such as the feasibility one, that Palestinians and Israelis simply cannot live together the you know the conflict is decades old and they have this ingrained hatred of one another which is not only uh, incredibly a uh, unnuanced argument it also has deep racial connotations which i absolutely refute there is not something in my blood that tells me that i have to hate uh, israeli jews and there is not something in israeli jewish blood that tells them they have to hate palestinians this is um a situation of settler colonialism, of dominance of one group over another people. Um, uh, and as I said, you know, I think um, another argument that comes up when we talk about annexation is about creeping apartheid. And I already discussed in the presentation that I believe that apartheid exists, but I'm also very careful with that apartheid argument. I think uh, we have to be very careful, you know, people fall into this trap of assuming that apartheid is an end to the separation of people. It's not just about that. It's not just about coexistence and Israelis and Palestinians living together. It's about a complete reconfiguration of the social contract that exists, a reconfiguration of, of, uh, the, 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 of social and, uh, and economic systems. We know that in South Africa, political apartheid ended, but economic apartheid certainly did not end. And I think we have to be very cautious about that when we're talking about this this reconfiguration when we use terms like apartheid, when we use terms like one state. Um, and just to end and highlight that, you know, one state isn't a possibility, it's a reality, it's here. And it's about how we want that to look in the future. Thank you. So that's, that's it. Thank you very much to both our speakers, to Yara and to Daniel. Thank you to all uh, who participated um, I hope that I asked, uh, I was able to ask a reasonable uh, range of questions. A, a, a lot of them were on the same sort of issues, fairly predictively. But again, thank you again from the Middle East Centre of the London School of Economics. Thank you. Bye bye.